Section number four of A General View of Positivism. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A General View of Positivism by Auguste Comte, translated by John Henry Bridges. Chapter one, The Intellectual Character of Positivism, part four. We see from these brief remarks that the series of abstract sciences naturally arranges itself according to the decrease in generality and the increase in complication. We see the reason for the introduction of each member of the series and the mutual connection between them. The classification is evidently the same as that before laid down in my theory of development. That theory may therefore be regarded from a statical point of view as furnishing a direct basis for the coordination of abstract conception, on which, as we have seen, the whole synthesis of human life depends. That coordination at once establishes unity in our intellectual operations. It realises the desire, obscurely expressed by Bacon for La Scala Intellectuis, a ladder of the understanding, by the aid of which our thoughts may pass with ease from the lowest subjects to the highest, or vice versa, without weakening the sense of their continuous connection in nature. Each of the six terms, of which our series is composed in its central portion, quite distinct from the two adjoining links, but it is closely related in its commencement to the preceding term, in its conclusion to the term which follows. A further proof of the homogeneousness and continuity of the system is that the same principle of classification, when applied more closely, enables us to arrange the various theories of which each science consists. For example, the three great orders of mathematical speculation, arithmetic, geometry and mechanics, follow the same law of classification as that by which the entire scale is regulated. And as I have shown in my positive philosophy, the same holds good of the other sciences. As a whole, therefore, the series is the most concise summary that can be formed of the vast range of abstract truth, and conversely all the rational researches of a special kind result in some partial development of the series. Each term in it requires its own special processes of induction, yet in each we reason deductively from the preceding term, a method which will always be as necessary for the purposes of instruction as it was originally for the purposes of delivery. Thus it is that all our other studies are but a preparation for the final science of humanity. By it their mode of culture, which is so closely connected with social sympathy, nor is there any danger of such influence becoming oppressive, since the very principle of our system is to combine a due measure of independence with practical convergence. The fact that our theory of classification, by the very terms of its competition, composition, subordinates intellectual to social considerations, is eminently calculated to secure its popular acceptance. It brings the whole speculative system under the criticism, and at the same time under the protection of the public, which is usually not slow to check any abuse of those habits of abstraction which are necessary to the philosopher. The same theory, then, which explains the mental evolution of humanity, lays down the true method by which our abstract conceptions should be classified, thus reconciling the conditions of order and movement, hitherto more or less at variance. Its historical clearness and the philosophical force strengthens each other. For we cannot understand the connection of our conceptions except by studying the succession of the phases through which they pass. And, on the other hand, but for the existence of such a connection, it would be impossible to explain the historical phases. So we see that for all sound thinkers, history and philosophy are inseparable. Therefore, we are in a position to proceed at once with the work of social regeneration. A theory which embraces the statical as well as the dynamical aspects of the subject, and which fulfils the conditions here spoken of, 
may certainly regard, be regarded as establishing the true objective basis on which unity can be established in our intellectual functions. And this unity will be developed and consolidated as our knowledge of its basis becomes more satisfactory. But the social application of the system will have far more influence on the result than any overstrained attempts at exact scientific accuracy. The object of our philosophy is to direct the spiritual reorganization of the civilized world. It is with a view to this object that all attempts at fresh, fresh discovery or at improved arrangements should be conducted. Moral and political requirements will lead us to investigate new relations, but the search should not be carried out farther than it is necessary for their application. Sufficient for our purpose, if this incipient classification of our mental products be so far worked out that the synthesis of affection and of action may at once be attempted, that is, that we may once begin to construct that system of morality under which the final regeneration of humanity will proceed. Those who have read my positive philosophy will, I think, be convinced that the time for this attempt has arrived. How urgently it is needed will appear in every part of the present work. Error of identifying positivism with atheism, materialism, fatalism or optimism. Atheism, like theology, discusses insoluble mysteries. I have now described the general spirit of positivism, but there are two or three points on which some further explanation is necessary, as they are the source of misapprehensions too common and too serious to be disregarded. Of course I only concern myself with such objections as are made in good faith. The fact of entire freedom from theological belief being necessary before the positive state can be perfectly attained has induced superficial observers to confound positivism with a state of pure negation. Now this state was, at one time, and that even so recently as in the last century, favourable to progress. But at present, in those who unfortunately still remain in it, it is a radical obstacle to all sound, social and even intellectual organisation. I have long ago repudiated all philosophical or historical connection between positivism and what is called atheism, but it is desirable to expose the error somewhat more clearly. Atheism, even from the intellectual point of view, is a very imperfect form of emancipation, for its tendency is to prolong the metaphysical stage indefinitely by to continuing to seek for new solutions of theological problems, instead of setting aside all inaccessible researches on the ground of their utter inutility. The true positive spirit consists in substituting the study of the invariable laws of phenomena for their so-called causes, whether proximate or primary, in a word in studying the how instead of the why. Now, this is wholly incompatible with the ambitious and visionary attempts of atheism to explain the formation of the universe, the origin of animal life, etc. The positivist, comparing the various phases of human speculation, looks upon these scientific chimeras as far less valuable, even from the intellectual point of view, than the first spontaneous inspirations of primeval times. The principle of theology is to explain everything by supernatural wills, that principle can never be set aside until we acknowledge the search for causes to be beyond our reach and limit ourselves to the knowledge of laws. As long as men persist in attempting to answer the insoluble questions which occupied the attention of the childhood of our race, by far the more rational plan is to do as was done then, that is simply to give free play to the imagination. These spontaneous beliefs have gradually fallen into disuse not because they've been disproved, but because mankind has become more enlightened as to its wants and the scope of its powers, and has gradually given an entirely new direction to its speculative efforts. If we insist on penetrating the unattainable mystery of the essential cause that produces phenomena, there is no hypothesis more satisfactory 
than they proceed from wills dwelling within them or outside them, a hypothesis which assimilates them into the effect produced by the desires which exist within ourselves. Were it not for the pride induced by metaphysical and scientific studies, it would be inconceivable that any atheist, modern or ancient, should have believed that this vague hypothesis on such a subject were preferable to this direct mode of explanation. And it was the only mode which really satisfied the reason until men began to see the utter inanity and inutility of all such search for absolute truth. The order of nature is doubtless very imperfect in every respect, but its production is far more compatible with the hypothesis of an intelligent will than that of a blind mechanism. Persistent atheists, therefore, would seem to be the most illogical of theologists, because they occupy themselves with the theological problems and yet reject the only appropriate method of handling them. But the fact that pure atheism, even in the present day, is very rare. is What is called atheism is usually a phase of pantheism, which is really nothing but a relapse disguised under the learned terms, into a vague and abstract form of fetishism. And it is not impossible that it may lead to the reproduction, one form or other, of every theological phase, as soon as the check which modern society still imposes on metaphysical in extravagance has become somewhat weakened. The adoption of such theories as a satisfactory system of belief indicates a very exaggerated or rather false view of intellectual requirements and a very insufficient recognition of moral and social wants. It is generally connected with the visionary but mischievous tendencies of ambitious thinkers to uphold what they call the empires of reason. In the moral sphere it forms a sort of basis for the degrading fallacies of modern metaphysics as to absolute preponderance of self-interest. Politically, its tendency is to unlimited prolongation of the revolutionary position. Its spirit is that of blind hatred to the past, and it resists all attempts to explain it on positive principles with a view to disclosing the future. Atheism, therefore, is not likely to lead to positivism, except in those who pass through it rapidly as the last and most short-lived of metaphysical phases. And the wide diffusion of the scientific spirit in the present day makes this passage so easy to arrive at maturity without accomplishing it, it is a symptom of certain mental weakness which is often connected with moral insufficiency, and is very incompatible with positivism. Negation offers but a feeble and precarious basis for union, and disbelief in monotheism is of itself no better proof of a mind fit to grapple with the questions of the day than disbelief in polytheism or fetishism, which no one would maintain to be an adequate ground for claiming intellectual sympathy. The atheistic phase, indeed, was not really necessary, except for the revolutions in the last century, who took the lead in the movement towards radical regeneration of society. The necessity has already ceased, for the decayed condition of the old system makes the need for regeneration palpable to all. Persistence in anarchy and atheism are the most characteristic symptom of anarchy, is a temper of mind more unfavourable to the organic spirit, which ought by this time to have established its influence, than sincere adhesion to the old forms. This latter is, of course, obstructive, but at least it does not hinder us from fixing our attention upon the great social problem. Indeed, it helps us to do so, because it forces the new philosophy to throw aside every weapon of attack against the older faith, except in its own higher capacity of satisfying our moral and social wants. But in the atheism maintained by many metaphysicians and scientific men of the present day, positivism, instead of wholesome rivalry of this kind, will meet with nothing but barren resistance. Anti-theological as such men may be, 
they feel unmixed repugnance for any attempts at social regeneration, although their efforts in the last century had to some extent prepared the way for it. Far then from counting upon their support, positivists must expect to find them hostile, although from the incoherence of their opinions it will not be difficult to reclaim those of them whose errors are not essentially due to pride. Materialism is due to the encroachment of the lower sciences on the domain of the higher, an error which positivism rectifies. The charge of materialism which is often made against positive philosophy is of more importance. It originates in the course of scientific study upon which the positive system is based. In answering the charge I need not enter into any discussion of impenetrable mysteries. Our theory of development will enable us to see distinctly the real ground and the confusion that exists upon that subject. Positive science was for a long time limited to the simplest subjects. It could not reach the highest except by a natural series of intermediate stages. As each of these steps is taken, the student is apt to be influenced too strongly by the methods and results of the preceding stage. Here, as it seems to me, lies the real source of that scientific error which men have instinctively blamed as materialism. The name is just because the tendency indicated is one which degrades the highest subjects of thought by confounding them with the lower. It was hardly possible that this usurpation by one science of the domain of another should have been wholly avoided. For since the more special phenomena do really depend on the more general, it is perfectly legitimate for each science to exercise a certain deductive influence upon that which follows it in the scale. By such influence, the special induction of that science were rendered more coherent. The result, however, is that each of the sciences has, to, has had to undergo a long struggle against the encroachments of the one preceding it. A struggle which, even in the case of the subjects which have been studied longest, is not yet over. Nor can it entirely cease until the controlling influence of sound philosophy be established over the whole scale, introducing juster views of the relations of its several parts, about which at present there is such irrational confusion. Thus it appears that materialism is a danger inherent in the mode in which the scientific studies is necessary as a preparation for positivism and is pursued. Each science tended to absorb the one next to it on the grounds of having reached the positive stage earlier and more thoroughly. The evil then is really deeper and more extensive than is imagined by most of those who deplore it. It passes generally unnoticed except in the highest class of subjects. These doubtless are more seriously affected inasmuch as they undergo the encroaching process from all the rest but we find the same thing in different degrees in every step of the scientific scale. Even the lowest step mathematics is no exception, though its position would seem at first sight to exempt it. To a philosophic eye there is materialism in the common tendency of mathematics at the present day to absorb geometry or mechanics into the calculus, as well as the more evident encroachments of mathematics upon physics, of physics upon chemistry, of chemistry which is more frequent upon biology or lastly the common tendency of the best biologists to look upon sociology as a mere corollary of their own science. In all cases it is the same fundamental error, that is, an exaggerated use of deductive reasoning, and in all it is attended with the same result, that higher studies are in constant danger of being disorganized by the indiscriminate application of the lower. All scientific specialists at the present time are more or less materialists, according as the phenomena studied by them are more or less simple and general. Geometricians, therefore, are more liable to error than any others. They all aim consciously or otherwise at a synthesis in which the most elementary studies, those of number, space and motion, are made to regulate all the rest. But the biologists who resist this encroachment are, most energetically, are often guilty of the same mistake. 
They not infrequently attempt, for instance, to explain all sociological facts by the influence of climate and race, which are purely secondary, thus showing their ignorance of the fundamental laws of sociology, which can ever only be discovered by a series of direct inductions from history. The philosophical estimate of materialism explains how it is that it has been brought as a charge against positivism and at the same time proves the deep injustice of the charge. Positivism, far from countenancing so dangerous an error, is, as we have seen, the only philosophy which can completely remove it. The error arises from certain tendencies which are in themselves legitimate, but which have been carried too far, and positivism satisfies these tendencies in their due measure. Hitherto the evil has remained unchecked except by the theologico-metaphysical spirit, which by giving rise to what is called spiritualism has rendered a very valuable service. But useful as it has been, it could not arrest an active growth of materialism, which has assumed in the eye of modern thinkers something of a progressive character, from having been so long connected with the cause of resistance to the retrograde system. Notwithstanding all these protests of the spiritualists, the lower sciences have encroached upon the higher to an extent that seriously impairs their independence and their value. But positivism meets the difficulty far more effectively. It satisfies and reconciles all that is really tenable in the rival claims of both materialism and spiritualism, and having done this it discards them both. It holds the one to be as dangerous to order as the others to progress. The result is an immediate consequence of the establishment of the encyclopedic scale, in which each science retains its own proper sphere of induction, while deductively it remains subordinate to the science which precedes it. But what really decides the matter is the fact that such paramount importance, both logically and scientifically, is given by positive philosophy to social questions. For these are the questions in which the influence of materialism is most mischievous, and also in which it is most easily introduced. A system, therefore, which gives them the precedence over all other questions must hold materialism to be quite as obstructive as spiritualism, since both are alike an obstacle to the progress of that science for the sake of which all other sciences are studied. Further advance in the work of social regeneration implies the elimination of both of them, because it cannot proceed without exact knowledge of the laws of moral and social phenomena. In the next ch chapter, I shall have to speak of these mischievous efforts of materialism upon the art or practice of social life, it leads to a misconception of the most fundamental principle that art, namely the systematic separation of spiritual over temporal power. To maintain that separation, to carry out a more satisfactory basis the admirable attempt made in the Middle Ages by the Catholic Church, is the most important of political questions. Thus the antagonism of positivism to materialism rests upon political no less than upon philosophical grounds. With the view of securing a dispassionate consideration of this subject and of avoiding all confusion, I have laid no stress upon the charge of immorality that is so often brought against materialism. The reproach, even when made sincerely, is constantly belied by experience. Indeed, it is inconsistent with all that we know of human nature. Our opinions, whether right or wrong, have not fortunately had the absolute power over our feelings and conduct which is commonly attributed to them. Materialism has been provisionally connected with the whole movement of emancipations and has therefore often been found in common with the noblest aspirations. That connection, however, has now ceased, and it must be owned that even in the most favourable cases this error, purely intellectual though it be, has to a certain extent always checked the free play of our nobler instincts, by leading men to ignore or misconceive moral phenomena, which were left unexplained by its crude hypothesis. Cabernet gave a striking example of this tendency in its unfortunate attack against medieval chivalry. 
Cabanis was a philosopher whose moral nature was as pure and sympathetic as his intellect was elevated and enlarged. Yet the materialism of his day had entirely blinded him to the beneficial results of the attempts made by the most energetic of our ancestors to the institute of the worship of woman. We have now examined the two principal charges brought against the positive system, and have found that they apply merely to the unsystematic state in which positivist principles were first introduced. But the system is also accused of fatalism and optimism, charges which it will not be necessary to dwell on at great length, because, though frequently made, they are not difficult to refute. Nor is positivism fatalist, since it exerts the external order to be modifiable. The charge of fatalism has accompanied every fresh extension of positive science from its first beginning. Nor is this surprising, for when any series of phenomena passes from the domain of wills, whether it be modified by metaphysical abstractions or not, to the dominion of laws, the regularity of the latter contrasts so strongly with the instability of the former as to present the appearance of fatality, which nothing but a very careful examination of the real character of scientific truth can dissipate. And this error is the more likely to occur from the fact that our first types of natural laws are derived from the phenomena of the heavenly bodies. These being wholly beyond our interference always suggest the notion of absolute necessity, a notion of which it is difficult to prevent from extending to more complex phenomena as soon as they are brought within the reach of a positive method. And it is quite true that positivism holds the order of nature to be in its primary aspect strictly invariable. All variations, whether spontaneous or artificial, are, the only are only transient or of secondary import. The conception of unlimited variations would, in fact, be very equivalent to the rejection of the law altogether. But while this accounts for the fact that every new positive theory is accused of fatalism, it is equally clear that blind persistence in the accusation shows a very shallow conception of what positivism really is. For, unchangeable as the order of nature is in its main aspects, yet all its phenomena, except those of astronomy, admit of being modified in their secondary relations, and this is the more that they are more complicated. The positivist spirit, when confined to the subjects of mathematics and astronomy, was inevitably fatalist, but this ceased to be the case when it extended to physics and chemistry, and especially to biology, where the margin of variation is very considerable. Now that it embraces social phenomena, the reproach, however it may have been once deserved, should be heard no longer, since these phenomena which will for the future form a principal field, admit of larger modification than of any others, and chiefly by our own intervention. It is obvious then that positivism, far from encouraging indolence, stimulates the action, especially to social action, far more energetically than any theological doctrine. It removes all groundless scruples and prevents us from having recourse to chimeras. It encourages our efforts everywhere, except where they are manifestly useless. The charge of optimism applies to theology rather than positivism. The positivist judges of all historical actions relatively, but does not justify them indiscriminately. For the charge of optimism, there is even less ground for, than for that of fatalism. The latter was, to a certain extent, connected with the rise of the positivist spirit. But optimism is simply a result of theology, and its influence has always been decreasing with the growth of positivism. Astronomical laws, it is true, suggest the idea of perfection as naturally as that of necessity. On the other hand, their great simplicity places the defects of the order of nature in so clear a light that optimists would never have sought their arguments in astronomy, were it not that the first elements of that science had to be worked out under the influence of monotheism, a system which involved the hypothesis of absolute wisdom. But, by the theory of development on which the positive synthesis is here made to rest, 
optimism is discarded as well as fatalism in the direct proportion of the intricacy, uh, intricacy of the phenomena. It is in the most intricate that the defects of nature, as well as the power of modifying them, become manifest. With regard, therefore, to social phenomena, the most complex of all, both charges are utterly misplaced. Any optimistic tendencies that writers on social subjects may display must be due to the fact that their education has not been such as to teach them the nature and conditions of the true scientific spirit. For want of sound logical training, great misuse has been made in our own time of a property peculiar to social phenomena. It is that we find them in greater amount spontaneous wisdom than might have been expected from their complexity. It would be a mistake, however, to suppose this wisdom perfect. The phenomena in question are those of intelligent beings who are always occupied in amending the defects of their economy. It is obvious, therefore, that they will show less imperfection than if, as in a case equally complicated, the agents could have been blind. The standard by which to judge of action will always be taken relatively in the social state in which the action takes place. Therefore all historical positions and changes must have at least some grounds of justification, otherwise they would be totally incomprehensible. Because inconsistent with the nature of the agents and of the actions performed by them. Now this naturally fosters a dangerous tendency to optimism in all thinkers who, whatever their powers may be, have not passed through any strict scientific training, and have consequently never cast off any metaphysical and theological modes of thought in the higher subjects. Because every government shows a certain adaptation to the civilization of its time, they make the loose assertion that the adaptation is perfect, a conception which is of course chimerical. But it is unjust to charge positivism with errors which are evidently contrary to its true spirit, and merely due to the want of logical and scientific training of those who have hitherto engaged in the study of social questions. The object of sociology is to explain all historical facts, not to justify them indiscriminately, as is done by those who are unable to distinguish the influence of the agent from that of its surrounding circumstances. The word positive connotes all the highest intellectual attributes and will ultimately have a moral significance. On reviewing this brief sketch of the intellectual character of positivism, it will be seen that all its essential attributes are summed up in the word positive, which I applied to the new philosophy at its outset. All the languages of Western Europe agree in understanding by this word and its derivatives the two qualities of reality and usefulness. Combining these, we at once get an adequate definition of the true philosophic spirit, which after all is nothing but good sense generalised and put into a systematic form. The term also implies, in all European languages, certainty and precision, qualities by which the intellect of modern nations is markedly distinguished from those of antiquity. Again, the ordinary acceptance of the term implies a directly organic tendency. Now, the metaphysical spirit is incapable of organising, it can only criticise. This distinguishes it from the positive spirit, although for a time they had a common sphere of action. By speaking of positivism as organic, we imply that it has social purpose, that purpose being to supersede theology in the spiritual direction of the human race. But the word will bear yet a further meaning. The organic character of the system leads us naturally to another of its attributes, namely its invariable relativity. Modern thinkers will never rise above that critical position which they have hitherto taken up towards the past, except by repudiating all absolute principles. This last meaning is more latent than the others, but it is really contained in the term. It will soon become generally accepted, and the word positive will be understood to mean relative as much as it now means organic, precise, certain, useful and real. Thus the highest attributes of human wisdom we have, with one exception, have been gradually condensed into a single expressive term. 
All that is now wanting is that the word should denote what at first could form no part of the meaning, the union of moral with intellectual qualities. At present only the latter are included, but the course of modern progress makes it certain that the conception applied by the word positive will ultimately have a more direct reference to the heart than to the understanding. For it will soon be felt by all that the tendency of positivism, and that by virtue of its primary characteristic reality, is to make feeling systematically supreme over reason as well as over activity. After all, the change consists in simply realising the full etymological value of the word philosophy, for it was impossible to realise it until moral and mental conditions have been reconciled, and this has now been done by the foundation of a positive science of society. End of section 4, recorded by Morris in Alsi, Bedfordshire.